Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this time for us to come together, for the freedom to be able to open up your word without fear of being dragged off to prison, Lord. I thank you for that. Lord, now as we open up your word here, I pray that you have already begun to prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you hear, Lord, that the, that the seed of your word would take root in the soil of our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, and in your name. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. <laughs> Yikes. I know. Suddenly I'm not feeling great about being on this stage. I'm feeling kind of tall. So, all right, all right, all right. Last week, we looked at chapter 10, verses 17 through 42. It's kind of like the end half of chapter 10. And um, it, at first glance, it kind of seems like Jesus is just kind of warning them about all of these like really horrible things that await them um, as they go out into the cities that he's sending them because of their connection to Jesus and, and his message. But when we look through this on our Wednesday afternoon study, we could see that there's actually more wonderful assurances in this chapter than there are warnings from Christ. Um, and all of these wonderful assurances come from this relationship that they have with Jesus. Reset. When we, so here's my question. When we were first going through these, um, these verses last week, did you see the warnings first or did you see the assurances first? In other words, when you read through the word of God, did you see the good things or did you see the bad things first? That was my question. Are you a glass half full type of person or a glass half empty type of person? So how many of you here would say that you are generally speaking a glass half empty type of person? You can raise your hand, half, half empty. Anyone? A couple. A few people? Great. Thank you for your honesty. Okay. How many of you then would say, I'm definitely a half full type of person, glass half full? Okay. Great. Excellent. This is what I think. If you can't decide whether you have a glass half full or a glass half empty, pour it into a little cup and be happy. (laughs) David, King David actually chimes in on this very subject, you know, but he says in Psalm 32, among other things, he says that because of the presence of the good uh, shepherd, his cup isn't just half full or half empty, it's running over. David says, because of the presence of the good shepherd, shepherd, my cup runneth over. So David wasn't saying, well, I have to figure out whether it's half full or half empty or even full. He's saying it's so full because of the presence of the good shepherd, it runneth over. It overflows. That's the cup I want. I want the overflowing cup. But as you go through that chapter last week, maybe we can see the uh, warnings that Jesus has given them because they're obvious or they seem more obvious. The assurances are there, but it takes a little bit more effort to see the assurances. We can see the the warnings. He's like, people are going to hate you. They're going to call you names. You're going to divide families with the message that I'm going to give you. But along with all those warnings, there come all these really great assurances, but you have to look a little harder to see them. Life can be like that, can't it? 
the obstacles, the struggles, the things that we deal with, the hardships, the doubts, the fears about the future, they seem to be right in front of us, obvious, like right in front of us. But the assurances, the promises that are there, they're there, but it takes a little more effort sometimes to see them. See, anybody can easily cast shade into your life, but the assurances of God are only found in his word. The, the very thing that you have open right in front of you right now, the word of God, the answers to the doubts that you have, the answers to the fears are in the word that is right now, right in front of you. And here's the really cool thing. You have, how many of you have a cell phone? Come on. On your cell phone is the Word of God. Some of you are using it right now to actually read the Word of God. And here's the really beautiful thing is that God says, you know what? I'm going to put the Word of God on your phone. So wherever you go, wherever you are, almost any place you are, you have access to the Word of God. That's amazing. I like God just takes technology. He's like, that's, I'm going to use that. That's mine now. So um, Jesus says to them, go out. Remember, there are some bad things that are going to happen, but there are some really great assurances that are going to come as a result of those bad things. And then he says to them in verse 31 of chapter 10, don't be afraid because you are of great value to God. You are of great value to God, he says. And then he sends them out to go and do what it is that he told them to go go out and heal the sick and the lepers and raise the dead and preach the message of the kingdom of heaven, go. And that brings us right to chapter 11. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Very interesting that Jesus doesn't say, all right, you guys go, you guys go out and preach in these cities and do all these things. I'm going to hang out here and wait for you. I'm going to get some falafel. I'm going to binge watch the chosen. You go. I'm going to be here. And we see Jesus says, you go that way. I'll go this way. We'll cover more ground. Jesus says, I am not sending you out to do anything that I also would not do myself. And so they go, and then he goes into the other cities. And verse 2, it says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of, the, of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the one coming, or do we look for another? Okay, this is John the Baptist, okay? It just says John here, but we know that he's talking about John the Baptist. This is the guy um, that it was prophesied that he would be the one in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the, the guy that was born of Elizabeth who was barren until an angel came and said, God has blessed you and you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. He happens to be the cousin of Jesus. Well, we know this from the other scriptures. This is the same John that baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, John the Baptist. Now, at this point in the story, John has been in prison for about a year. Can you imagine? This is John the Baptist, the guy that lived out in the wilderness every single day. So, so much of a frontiersman that he, his outfit was like camel's hair with a, with a, a leather strap or belt, um, crazy beard, um, e eating Locusts and wild honey, that, that was this John. The guy slept under the stars, and now he's been in prison for a year. 
And I can't imagine how hard just prison itself at that time, but for him especially to be cooped up, not able to be going out and doing what it is that he felt he was born to do. John. Now, the reason John is in prison, actually, at this time, is because about a year before this, um, the, the, the governor, the ruler at the time, Herod Antipas, went to visit his brother Philip in Rome. And while he was there in Rome visiting his brother Philip, he decided that he really liked Philip's wife, Herodias, and so he seduced her away from his brother and brought her back to Jerusalem with him. And then he divorced his wife so that he could marry Herodias. All right, it was kind of a big scandal. So John the Baptist comes to him and he says, hey, that thing that you did, seducing away your brother's wife and marrying her and divorcing her, that's not right. That's sin. You need to repent. John was really bold in that way. He came right up to him and said that. And so this was very embarrassing for Herod Antipas, and he was also very upset to the point that he actually wanted to kill John the Baptist, but he didn't do it because he was afraid of the people because the people believed that John was a great prophet, which he was. So rather than kill John, he just put him in prison. Later on, he is actually going to cut off John's head, but that was because his wife Herodias gets very upset with with John and convinces her daughter to dance this, uh, this erotic dance before her husband, Herod Antipas, and convince him that she should get whatever she wants up to half the kingdom. And she says, I want you to cut off the head of John the Baptist. And that's how John dies. But here at this point, John has been in prison for a year. Okay. Everybody know who we're talking about? All right. He sends a message with two disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one that we are to wait for or are we supposed to wait for another one? Now that's surprising to me. Does that surprise you when you read that? It's like John the Baptist is wondering whether this Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied to come. Let me tell you why this is so surprising. All right. John knew that his life's work was to prepare the way for the Lord. It had been prophesied at the time of his birth. This was going to be his job. Now, at some point, he was um, about his ministry, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and Jesus, his cousin, comes down to him, who he knew Jesus. He didn't know at the time that Jesus was the Messiah, but he knew him to be a very good rabbi. He comes down to John in the river and he wants to be baptized. And John says, oh no, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, no, do it so that it can be fulfilled. And Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in that, at that time. Now, when Jesus came up out of the water, if you remember, the skies open up and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends um, like a dove from heaven and alights on Jesus. Now, that's a pretty good indication, but there's more. John will, will reveal to us later in the gospel of John, the other one, the other John, that he didn't know who the Messiah was, but he was told by God himself that whomever the Holy Spirit alights upon and stays, he is the one whom was sent. 
So then John says, so when I saw the Holy Spirit descend out of heaven and land on Jesus and stay there, I knew that Jesus was the one. In fact, three days or so after he baptized him, he's there in the river and he's with his disciples and he sees Jesus walking along the shore. He points to him and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he says, he is the one. Now a year later, he's sending disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one? What is going on here? How could this guy, John, the one who knew what his life's work was, the one who recognized, had gotten confirmation from God himself, the one that had said to all the other people around him, this is the one, how could this guy now all of a sudden have doubts about who Jesus is? John has been in prison for a year. John is looking at this and John is having a crisis of faith. He is allowing his circumstances, the things around him, to distract him from what he knows is true away from that, and it's causing doubt to creep into his life. Anybody ever been where John is? Has anybody been affected by their circumstances and have those circumstances caused you to start to have fear or doubts? about the future, or about who Jesus is. He would say, Lord, how could you let this happen? How could you allow this? Why aren't you helping me? Are you even real? Remember the the disciples in the boat were like, do you even care that we're perishing? John, who should know and did know, is having doubts. We all are going to, if you haven't at some point had a crisis that caused you to wonder if God is even real, maybe you're, you've done that. Maybe you are in it right now. Maybe you're headed into it. It happens. Circumstances creep in and it causes us to say, God, are you, are you even who you say you are? This is what John does, and we should take a lesson from this also. John, when he has doubts, goes to Jesus for the answer. Remember, John hears about what Jesus is doing, and he's sitting there and thinking, all right, well, Jesus is doing this amazing ministry. What is taking him so long? Isn't he supposed to come in and take over uh, and throw over Russian? uh, Russian. Roman (laughs) oppression and free us all from bondage. And by the way, how come he's not helping me? I'm his cousin. I'm the one who pointed everybody to him. And here I sit for the last year in a prison. How come he's not fulfilling what, what we think he's supposed to do? And how come he's not helping me in what I need him to do? This is where John is. He smartly sends guys to Jesus with the answer. He doesn't, he doesn't start looking around in every other resource there might be to give him. He doesn't, John doesn't get out his laptop or his phone and go like, let me just check and see, is Jesus real? Now, that's silly. He couldn't, couldn't have done that. But he doesn't start asking everybody else, do you think Jesus is real? Do you think Jesus is real? He doesn't go to the world for the answer. He goes to the source. He goes to Jesus. That's smart. That's because that's where the answers are. And so he says to these guys, go ask him, are you the one 
who's coming or do we look for another? Jesus answered and he said to them, go and tell John the things that you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are risen, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus gives them an answer. He could have said, yes, yes, I am. And that would have been easy. But see, he goes way beyond that. See, what Jesus says to the disciples is this. He goes, all right, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard me say and what I've done. This is what he tells them. But then he says, he doesn't just give them a list. The list is very specific, but the list is so specific because he's not just saying, here's the things that I've done. In case you forgot, here are the things that I've done. He's saying the things that I have done were written about the one who would come. In Isaiah, I, had to, I wrote it down, hang on. Isaiah 29, 18 and Isaiah 6, 1, he combines two prophetic verses out of Isaiah that talk about the coming Messiah and what he will do, among other things. But he says, go and tell them that these things have happened as it was written of the one who would come. That will tell him who I am. That will give him assurance of who I am. He could have said, yeah, it's me. I'm him. But what he said was, John, go back into the word that you know and have that confirmed for you through the word of God. Your answer to your crisis is in the word. The answer to your crisis of faith is in the word, gang. That's not just for John the Baptist. You know that, right? You know that. In fact, you know what Jesus is saying to him even more specifically? John, I am the Messiah, but not because I fulfilled your expectations of who you think I should be and what you think I should do. I am the Messiah because I fulfilled the will of the Father as it was written of the Messiah in his word. You see the difference? I'm not the Messiah because I fulfilled what you think I'm supposed to do in your life. I am the Messiah because I fulfill the Father's will as he wrote it in his word. It's a big difference. Big difference. Jesus, I am who I am because the Father says I am, not because I've done what you think I should do or how I should do it. If you uh, are judging Jesus based on how he does what you think he should do, you're going to have doubts. But if you trust what the word says about the Messiah and who he is and what he will do, you can trust in that. It's not always easy. It doesn't mean that life is great all the time, does it? Or some of the time or any of the time. Is anybody's life great all the time? Anybody? No? No, okay. No, it's not. Jesus says, you know what? You want the answers? It's in the word. It's in the word. Do you know that in the book of Hebrews, the author writes, I think it's in like chapter four, the author writes to this, this audience of his, he says, you know, I wish that I could talk to you like spiritually mature Christians, but you're not. You're immature. I want to give you the meat, but I have to give you the milk 
because you don't know the word of God. If the answers to your concerns, your problems, your doubts, your fears are in the word, but you're not there, then where do your answers come from? Well, no place good, no place that's going to give you the real and honest truth. Can you imagine you're 52 years old, you're still wearing a diaper and drinking formula out of a bottle? That's a silly image, but that is literally the image that he's saying. You're a baby when it comes to your understanding of the word. And here it is, it's right here. You have it with you all the time. If you're only opening it up here on Sundays when you come, then you will always be a baby when it comes to the word of God. You cannot eat a salad one day a week and claim to be a healthy eater. You got to get that salad in there a couple times, three, four times. My wife eats salad at every single meal, even breakfast. And I hate salad. (laughs) That's the answer that he said to John's disciples, and he sent them away. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, now hold on, you have to understand that Jesus wasn't outside just talking to these two guys. There was a multitude of people around him. Everywhere that Jesus went, there was a multitude of people. They were always looking for what they could get from Jesus, especially now that they had heard that he, he heals people and he cleanses people and miraculous things have happened. Jesus, it doesn't say here that Jesus went out healing, actually. It says that he went out preaching and teaching. But there's a multitude of people around him. And all of a sudden, all these people who are very likely aware of who John is and his ministry are hearing that John is having doubts about who Jesus is. And they start to wonder, well, what, what, wait a minute, you know, what's going on with this guy, John? I thought he was like this really great prophet. And all of a sudden, he's, he's the one that pointed me to Jesus and saying, he's the one, he's the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now all of a sudden, he's in prison and he's wondering if Jesus is there and what is going on in Jesus. Jesus picks up on this vibe. So he addresses the crowd. He goes, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He's not really asking. The answer is no. That's not who you did not go out to see John. When you went out to the wilderness to see John, you didn't go out and see him because he was um, a, a, a reed blown to and fro without any kind of a solid stance. You went because he had a message and he was steadfast in that message. Then he says, what, did you go out to see a guy that's dressed in soft clothes, soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothes, uh, soft garments are in a king's house. He said, did you, you didn't go out to see a reed blown in the wind. You went out to see a prophet. Or did you go out to see a guy who's soft, who's easily persuaded this way or that way, or just is seeking after everybody's approval? No, that's not who you went to see. He's just confirming what they already knew. You went out to see John because his message is steadfast. You went out to see John because he's not swayed. That was what you wanted. You wanted truth. That's what you went to see. He says, but did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before him. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. 
wow, that's quite an endorsement that Jesus is giving John in front of this crowd, number one, because he starts to sense that maybe they're doubting John and his convictions. But he's saying, no, John was not swayed to the left or to the right. John was not soft. John was a prophet and not just a prophet. He was greater than any prophet that came before him. Really? I mean, what about Moses? What about Samuel? What about David? Greater than those guys? How is it so? Here's how it's so. Every prophet before John had this message, basically when it came to the one who was to come. There's one coming. He is going to show up. God's going to send them and he's going to free us from our oppression and from our sin. There's one coming. That was their basic message. Here's John's message. There's one coming. He's going to do all those things. He's going to show up. He's going to free us from oppression. And there he is. See, John had a fuller understanding of the redemptive plan of God's love because all of the prophets before him could only say there's one coming, but John could say there is one coming and it's that guy right there. Go and follow him. Man, that was why Jesus said of any man born to a woman, there's none that have risen greater than John when it comes to the message of God's redemption because he had more of the picture than anybody before him. But look at this. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now hold on a second. He just said that anybody born of woman, there wasn't anybody born of woman greater than John. And yet, anyone who is in the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now how's that possible? Come on, Jesus. Well, here's the thing. In the same sense that John had more a more complete picture of God's redemptive love, any person from the point of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross now has a complete picture of the redemptive love of God's plan through Jesus Christ. John knew Jesus was here and was the Messiah, but John did not live long enough to see him crucified for the sins of humanity and then risen again, defeating death and paying that debt. John did not get to see that. But every person from that day of the resurrection on now had access to the whole picture. And in God's mind, that person has a greater message than John or anyone before because it's the complete picture of redemption of humanity. Get it? That makes him great. That means today is your first day as a Christian. Guess what? Greater than John when it comes to the redemptive picture of God's love because you have been given the full understanding, the full picture. John only had it up to Jesus' death, which he didn't die. That means in Jesus' eyes, you're greater than John. Now, I mean, don't get a big head about it. It just means that you have a greater picture of God's redemption. But you know what comes with great response, great power? Spider-Man fans, great responsibility, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And so now you all, if you are a believer and have a hold of that picture of God's redemptive plan um, through Jesus Christ, now it is your responsibility, as it was John's up to that point, to take it to everyone else and to share that. Now, not everyone will receive it, but that's not for us to decide. 
It is our job to share it. We have that now responsibility. He says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. You know, that's a very interesting verse. He says, Jesus says here in my Bible, it says, if you are willing to receive it. It really is Jesus' way of saying, if you can handle this. If you can handle this, okay? Because what he's saying is, John is Elijah. What he's not saying John is actually Elijah. He's saying John is Elijah in the sense that he comes with the spirit and power of Elijah, which, by the way, was prophesied of John before he was even born. Before John was born, his father was a priest in the temple and was doing his priestly duty in the temple when he was approached by Gabriel, the archangel of the Lord, with a message. Gabriel was, is God's angel messenger, right? And so Gabriel said to Zacharias, um, you and your wife are going to have a baby. Now, Zacharias was very surprised by this because he says, how can that be? Because I'm old and my wife is very old. I didn't, that's not me. That's what, that's what he said. And he said, I'm old, but my wife is very old. He says, so how is it possible? And Gabriel caught by surprise says, uh, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I'm telling you that you are going to have a baby. But since you didn't believe me, you can't talk now until the baby's born. Mute. Zacharias was mute from that point forward. Now imagine, it says that he came out after his priestly duties were done and had to explain to everyone there what just took place. And how do you explain to somebody, an angel appeared to me from heaven while I was in there and told me that my very old wife and I were going to have a baby and his name would be John. And Gabriel said to him, he will go out in the power and spirit of Elijah. How do you convey that message in charade style? <laughs> I don't know. There was a chicken in the temple. What are you trying to say? See, it was foretold that John would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And now, and now Jesus says, if you can handle this, he's Elijah. Not he's the person of, but he's the power of, he's the spirit of Elijah. And remember, when Gabriel said there was a purpose, if you, if you read that story, he says there's a purpose for John's life. And the purpose of John's life is to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord through repentance. That was his whole purpose. That was the purpose for him to come, to be born. Then he says, But now he looks out at this crowd that he's talking to. To what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to it and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a winebibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And see Jesus saying, look, it doesn't matter, apparently, who God sends you. You reject them no matter what. You know, it, the children, you know, he uses a, an, an example. Where he says, we said, hey, we'll play a happy tune, but you didn't want to dance. So then we said, okay, we'll play a sad song. But then you were like, no, you're not going to mourn. 
Doesn't matter what, he says, it doesn't matter what I send. I sent John the Baptist, this austere man who has no frills and no real social uh, ability. Um, and you said that guy is a demon. So then I sent my son Jesus who came and sat down and ate dinner with you and hung out with you and laughed with you. And you said, oh, that guy's a, a, a wine bibber and a glutton. You will not be happy. Look at it this way. Right around May-ish, the end of May, I start to hear this. Man, we sure is dry. We need some rain. Wish it would rain. We really need rain. Look at the pond. Look at my pond. There's no water in it. Well, we really need the rain. And then it rains. And they say, oh, man, I can't believe it's raining. I had a tea time this morning. And really what they're thinking is, I know we need the rain, but if it could rain between 11.30 p.m. and, I don't know, 6.15 a.m., that would be perfect. God, if you could do it the way I would like it done, that would be great. Perfect. It would work out. But unless it is that way, you're not happy. He says, I sent John. You didn't accept him. I sent my son. You didn't accept him. You're not going to be happy unless it fits within your little window of your life to make it perfect. He says this, Jesus speaking to the crowd, this is what you're looking for. This is the generation that I'm looking for. But then he has this neat little verse, but wisdom is justified by her children. <sighs> What's that mean? <laughs> but wisdom is justified by her children. It's this. He says, what results has your wisdom produced? Answers or just more questions? What results has your wisdom produced? Answers to your questions or just more questions to your questions? And then he began to rebuke the cities which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if, this, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He's going to use these Old Testament cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and as a comparison to these, to him, modern cities that he's been in and doing work in. And he's saying, look, if the works that I had done and the things that I had said in your cities had taken place in these Old Testament cities, they would not have rejected it like you have, but you've rejected it. So in the end, it will be worse for you than for them. Last week, you remember, we, we talked about this. We said, even as bad as Tyre and Sidon were, their sin was not as great as the sin of rejecting Jesus. That is the greatest sin. He actually talks about it in the last chapter. He says, anybody that confesses me before men, I will confess before my father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the father. And he's talking about at the end, when you, when your life ends and you stand before God and God says, what did you do with my son, Jesus? And you say, Jesus, I, he died for my sins. He went to the cross for me. He died for my sins so that I could be forgiven. That's what I did with him. I believed him. And Jesus says, yeah, Father, he's mine. 
And then the father says, amazing, come in. But if you're standing there and, G- and God says, what did you do with my son? And you say, well, I didn't really know Jesus that well, but I did a lot of really good things. I did a lot of good work. I helped a lot of people. That's pretty honest. I didn't kill anyone. Why is that always the good thing that people think they did? I never killed anyone. Well, good, but that's not a good thing you did. It's a bad thing you didn't do. If that's your argument, then Jesus will stand there and say, I don't know this one. And God will say, away. You don't want that. What a horrifying thing to hear as you're standing before God to hear Jesus say, I don't know this one. And have God say, now away with you. That's what he's telling. This is the example that he's giving here. Tire and side, side, tire. What is it? (laughs) I don't think. Tire and Sidon and Sodom. He says, their sin was wicked, but it was not as wicked as your sin, Chorazin, Capernaum, because you rejected Jesus. The Bible says that's the only sin that's not forgivable. The only sin that's not forgivable is the rejection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. It's forgivable up until you no longer live. As soon as you breathe your last breath and you leave this earth, that sin is no longer forgivable. But up until that moment, it is. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God makes a way for even the worst sin that he talks about to still be forgiven. Isn't that amazing? We focus on the fact that God says, well, what do you mean there's a sin that's not forgivable? Rather than to think, I can't believe that there's a way that I can be forgiven. Now how many of you are half glass full, half glass empty, whatever it is. Glass, 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 full. If you're sitting there thinking, I can't believe that there's some kind of unforgivable sin, you're half empty. But if you're sitting there thinking, I can't believe that there's even a way that I can be forgiven, that's half full. And don't you want to be overflowing? Don't you want to be able to take that message and say, you can be forgiven? It's so simple. You can be forgiven. It's through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, you start to overflow your cup, and it starts to go down, and it starts to spread to everybody around you. Man, that's amazing. It says at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for... So it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and, and nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Yet when you first read that, you could look at that and say, well, that seems like Jesus is saying, I'm only going to reveal the Father to whom I want to. Because you could look at that and say, well, who's the one that he wants to reveal it to? But look at the next verse. Come to me, all you who labor and have heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you have at some point in your life felt heavy laden? <laughs> yes, just me and that lady right there. That's an apparent. Okay. 
Jesus says, if you've ever in your life felt like you were bearing the load of the world, and actually what it is, you may say bearing the load of the world. What Jesus says is, how many of you have felt the pressure of bearing your own sin all on your own? Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. Then in verse 29, he says, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, at first you could think like, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Like I'm free. I'm out here. I'm all by myself. I'm not hooked up and I'm not have to bear anybody else's burden. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? Take my yoke, not a yoke, my yoke. What he's saying, what, what, the reason they would use a yoke is that it would unify two animals together to be able to produce more or bear more of a burden. But what Jesus is saying is, be yoked to me. Be yoked to me. Be unified with me and let me bear the weight of your burden. In a a situation on the farm with a yoke is that the larger animal would bear the weight for the smaller animal. And Jesus is like, you're the smaller animal. I'm the bigger animal. Put on the yoke. Be unified with me and let me bear the weight of your sin because you can't do it on your own. Let me bear the weight of your sin, he says. Because he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word burden there, it's a word in Greek that means something that everyone has to carry. Something that everyone has to carry. We all bear the burden of our sin unless we are unified with Christ. We are yoked with him. If you're not yoked with Christ, you're bearing the burden. You're carrying it all on your own. And it's a price that you cannot afford to pay. You can't afford to pay it. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for this time. Lord, thank you for allowing us to come together. For the reminder that even though sometimes the obstacles are so obvious, Lord, that the assurances of your presence and your power are there and and even in greater number. Lord, help us to remember what we already know to be true and to cling to that when we come to the dark night of the soul. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is bearing the burden of their sin on their own. Lord, that they would have heard even those last few words Come and take on my yoke. Be unified with me and let me bear your burden. I pray, Lord, that they would even now call out and say, Lord, let me be yoked together with you. Lord, will you bear my burden? Forgive me of my sins. I thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for us to be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, thank you. Oh, Lord, I look forward to the day when I leave this place and go on to paradise, Lord, with you in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for making a way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.